It's good to be together on this first day of the week to be able to worship God. I'm always excited and grateful to be able to study the Word of God with you. This morning we'll be continuing the mini-series I began a few weeks ago on the nature and work of the Holy Spirit. When we consider the frequency with which He is mentioned and discussed throughout the Bible and the universal interest in knowing more about Him, and then also the multitudes of misconceptions and speculation concerning His nature and His work, I think this is an extremely relevant and necessary subject of study. In fact, I mentioned last time that the inspiration for this series, no pun intended, was discussions and studies and conversations I've had with others where it's become abundantly clear that a lot of the disagreement, a lot of the misunderstanding concerning doctrinal matters and other matters relates to misunderstandings about the nature and work of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit that we talked about last time, and then the Spirit's role in convicting and converting the sinner. How does the Spirit work in our redemption, in our salvation. That's what we want to talk about for a little while this morning as we talk about the sword of the Spirit. How does the Spirit work to convict and convert the sinner? That's the question that's under consideration this morning. And as always, we will use the Word of God, God's wisdom, God's standard, as we seek to answer that question and obtain the truth regarding it. And I think in Arriving at the truth, I think it starts with an understanding and an awareness of the fact that God, by His Spirit, speaks to us through His Word. We talked last time in part one about the Spirit's work in times past in inspiring and confirming this book. That He worked to inspire the prophets and the things that they taught and that they wrote that completed the Old Testament and how they were empowered to work miracles to confirm and authenticate their message. He did the same thing in the New Testament, inspiring the apostles and confirming what they taught through the miracles that they performed, inspiration and confirmation, that he would inspire them to write and teach and reveal the mind of God and the will of God. But why should we listen to them? Well, they would perform miracles that authenticated not only their message, but the messenger, that it came from God, but by the power of God, just like Jesus perform miracles to authenticate his message and to authenticate his divinity. So they were empowered to perform those miracles for that purpose. And so we shouldn't expect once the New Testament was completed, once the Bible was completed, and we have everything that we need contained within the pages of the book, the completed revelation and will of God, inspiration ceased. We no longer need inspiration. We don't need additional Bible then also those miraculous gifts necessary to confirm that inspiration is no longer necessary. We shouldn't expect those things today. We talked about that in part one. They were necessary then for that purpose, and they accomplished that purpose, and they were never meant to be perpetual. They had a specific purpose at a specific time, and they fulfilled that purpose. They accomplished that purpose. We looked at passages where the Jesus promised to send the Spirit. Many passages that are misunderstood that cause a lot of this confusion when we don't have context and we don't know who the audience is here. And people try to apply these passages that were addressed specifically to the prophets and the apostles to Christians today. John 14, we talked about when Jesus said that he was going to send the Spirit of truth. Notice the Spirit connected with truth. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things 
and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. They had fallible human minds. They would forget many of the things that Christ had taught them, wanted them to know, wanted us to know during his three-and-a-half-year personal ministry. And so it was necessary that he send the Comforter, the Spirit, to remind them of all those things he taught them. John 15, the very next chapter, he again says, The Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. Next chapter, John 16. He says, It's necessary for me to depart, because when I depart, I will send the Spirit to you, who will come and reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Not only bringing you into remembrance the things that I've taught you, but also guiding you into any additional truth that you need to know. And that's the New Testament. And if we have additional inspiration today, if God is leading us outside of the Bible today and he's bringing us direct messages today just like he did the apostles then, then he didn't keep that promise in guiding them into all truth. Evidently, if there's more truth that we're receiving today directly as we feel and as we are led supposedly by the Spirit, then he didn't guide them into all truth. But if he kept that promise, then all truth is contained in that book and the things that they wrote. And we shouldn't expect those things today. Someone today claims they have what was promised to them, to the apostles. They claim inspiration. There's a lot of problems with that. A lot of problems with that. But they claim they have it. And instead of arguing with someone on what they claim they felt or what they claim they heard, maybe it's more effective sometimes to simply point out that what they supposedly were told doesn't match what the Spirit has clearly taught in the Word of God. The Spirit doesn't do that, doesn't contradict what He said in the Bible. Their experience maybe doesn't match the experiences we'll study this morning in the book of Acts. Another effective strategy, ask them who Abraham's grandfather is. They'll say, hey, I don't know. But you weren't guided into all truth. You're not inspired. You see, the problem with this is the mind begins to submit to and follow the body instead of the flesh and the body submitting to the mind. You have this better felt than told religion where subjective experiences become the standard instead of the objective word of God. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, he warned us that if we don't have a love for the truth, God will send us strong delusions that will believe lies. And that's exactly what happens. It opens our, uh, ourselves up to be deceived by these subjective standards. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul writes, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. The Spirit speaks expressly. Not mysteriously, like many people teach today, not in incomprehensible ways, but in ways that we can easily understand. The Spirit speaks expressly. Peter talks about this inspiration process, 2 Peter 1.21, But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2. He talks about how God hath revealed those things to us, the apostles, by His Spirit. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. That's inspiration. Ephesians 3. Paul writes there in verse 3, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. And you look at the context here, specifically talking about this concept that the Gentiles would be heirs of the kingdom, be brought into the kingdom. This is now revealed. As I wrote a four and few words, whereby when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, 
as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In Acts 1.16, Peter here quotes the words of David and attributes them to the Spirit. He said, Men and brethren, the Scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. And so when David spoke those things, it wasn't really the words of David, it was the words of the Holy Spirit. And so the effects and the fruits produced in the hearts and minds of those who heard those things or read those things are really the fruits and effects of the Holy Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit moves and operates. Nehemiah 9, 30, Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testifiest against them by thy spirit in thy prophets, yet would they not give ear. How does the Holy Spirit reprove us? Jesus told the apostles he would send them and that he would reprove and convict the world of sin. How does he go about doing that? Evidently, he does that through the words of the prophets, the words of those who are inspired to write and record the will and revelation of God. He convicts us through their words. That's the same thing Stephen said as he addresses this Jewish uh, unbelieving audience in Acts 7.51. He's stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. There's heart and ears connected. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. How do we resist the Holy Ghost? Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to their hearts. The Holy Spirit convicts us and reproves us through the words, through the teaching of the Word of God. And so the question becomes then, does the Holy Spirit ever direct us apart from the Word of God, apart from the sword of the Spirit? Well, anyone who ascribes to the tenets of John Calvin, Calvinism, would answer in the affirmative. John Calvin was influenced specifically by the writings of Augustine a few hundred years after Christ and the concept of original sin that we inherit and are corrupted by the sin of Adam and Eve. And so when a child is born, I believe the Scriptures clearly teach they're innocent, but Calvinism teaches they're born a sinner. They're born in sin. We inherit the sin of our parents. That's passed down. And, and we have a totally depraved nature, corrupted nature, so that we are so totally depraved that we can't choose to do the right thing. We can't choose to submit to God. We can't choose to obey God. Therefore, God has to choose for us. And arbitrarily... He chooses who's elected and who's not elected before we're even born. That's the, the, the idea of predestination, unconditional election. And that leads to limited atonement, that Christ then, when he went to the cross, it was already decided. He only died for those who were elected before the foundation of the world. And if God has chosen you, then you can't resist that because he's made that choice. Irresistible grace, this idea of a direct operation of the Spirit apart from the Word. And then once saved, always saved. If you're chosen, you can't lose your salvation. Those are convenient doctrines. They're very appealing. They're very prevalent. They're very popular, but they're very wrong. There are a lot of problems with them. For one, they're an assault on the free will of man that God created us with. Our responsibility to choose. And even more important than that, maybe, is they are a character assassination. They are an assault on the character of God. The justice of God, the righteousness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, that Christ died for everybody, for the whole world. And Calvinism teaches otherwise. But Calvinism, I believe, is the mother of this idea of God sending His Spirit directly to operate upon us apart from the Word, to convict us and, and convert us. And they'll teach that there's this inner call 
apart from the word that allows you to respond to an outer call of preaching. That's so you can submit to God because you're totally depraved, so you could submit to the teaching of God's word. You need this inner call, this direct operation of the Spirit. And you won't find that concept taught anywhere in Scripture. This inner call allowing you to receive the outer call. And the question I have, if it's this inner call that makes all the difference, if it's the inner call that changes us, then why don't we ever read of anybody becoming a Christian in the Bible or in the New Testament, in the, in the book of Acts, and for the last 2,000 years up till today without hearing the gospel, without hearing the word of God? Why is the Bible and the gospel always present in conversion if it's the inner call that makes all the difference? I think we know the answer. I want to look at a few proof texts Calvin has put forward for this idea of a direct operation of the Spirit apart from the Word. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You can see how the Calvinism, a Calvinist might interpret this as saying that the natural man, somebody who is totally depraved, they say, can't receive the things that are of God. Notice again the context. We read the verses prior to this earlier. Paul was talking about the apostles being inspired to reveal the mind of God. So he's talking about inspiration there, and the apostles receiving that inspiration. But notice if a person is so depraved they can't receive spiritual things, that's what the Calvinists teach, then how do they receive this direct operation of the Spirit, which is spiritual? If you're so totally depraved that you can't understand and receive what the Spirit is saying in this book, how are you not too depraved to hear and understand what the Spirit is supposedly saying in your heart? What's the difference? And I think the ultimate question becomes, is the Word of God powerful and effectual? Is it capable? Does it serve a purpose or not? Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is quick or living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Evidently, the word of God is powerful enough to touch my heart and change my heart. And we see that throughout Scripture. We see that today in the lives of others. Hopefully, we see that in our own life, that the word of God can touch and transform the vilest of sinner if they take in and receive the words that are contained in that book. And they live him out. The Word of God is, is not dead. It's living and it's powerful. And it's capable. But these ideas of the direct operation of the Spirit necessary apart from the Word, these ideas of Calvinism teach otherwise. It says the Word of God is weak and powerless. It's not able. It's, it's powerless compared to Satan's hold on your depravity. And I believe that's a serious problem. The Word of God, we're told in Psalm 119, is the lamp unto our feet, the light unto our path. Isaiah 55, 11, the words that proceed from the mouth of God will not return void. They will accomplish His purpose. But Calvinism teaches otherwise. John 6, 44, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me, draw him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Again, they'll say that God has to draw you to Him through this direct operation, because you can't choose. But notice, there's nothing in here about a direct operation of the Spirit. There's nothing in here about it being irresistible. And the Calvinist has stopped one verse too short. As is often the case, when we don't read before and after, when we don't get the context, we often miss the point. If they would read the very next verse, Jesus clearly tells us how it is God draws us to Him. 
It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father comes unto me. God draws us to him through his word, through his truth. Ephesians 6, 17 says, And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Yet we have modern-day preachers that'll tell funny stories without preaching the Bible, without any scripture. And then they'll pray for God to convert sinners in the audience because they expect the Spirit's going to operate on the sinner apart from the Word. They don't need to preach the Word because the Spirit's going to do that apart from the Word. Yet the Bible teaches what they should have done is preach the Word and the Spirit could have operated upon them because the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It's the instrument, the weapon of the Spirit, offensively and defensively. It's the, it's the medium and the agency and the instrument that the Spirit uses to convict us and to convert us and to change us. Just like a surgeon might use a scalpel to make a cut, he uses that instrument to make a cut. We have here the Word of God, the Bible. Suppose my chest represents my heart. Now I can touch my heart directly with my hand, or I can touch it indirectly through an agency or through an instrument. And that's exactly how the Holy Spirit works. He touches us, He touches our hearts through the instrument of God's Word. That Word pricks our hearts and will change our life. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.21, Paul says, "...it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe." Chapter 4.15, in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through what? Through the direct operation of the Spirit? No, through the, through the gospel. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.22, seeing ye have purified your souls. Through what? By the direct operation of the Spirit that is necessary to purify our souls because we're to- totally depraved and corrupt? No, through obeying the truth through the Spirit. Verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of un- incorruptible. How? By the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. James writes in James 1.18, Of his own will beget he us with what? The word of truth. Verse 21, Receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able. Contrary to Calvinism, the word of God is able. It's capable to save your souls. Romans 10, Paul talks about the conversion process. How can they call if they don't believe? But how can you believe if you haven't heard? How can you hear without a preacher? How can they preach except they be sent? So then faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. What's the source of faith? What causes faith? Is, do we pray for faith and God gives us faith directly from the Spirit? How do we get faith? How do we come to believe in the, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, his, his sacrifice on the cross, the miracles He performed, the resurrection from the dead? Where do we come to believe those things? So then faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We'd have no knowledge of those things, to have faith in those things apart from the Word of God. And this faith that's given directly by operation of the Spirit apart from the Word of God is not the faith that Paul writes about. In Mark 4, Jesus gave the parable of the sower, this fundamental parable. He says, if you can't understand this, how can you understand anything? Mark 4, verses 14 and 15, he says, the sower sows the Word. And these are they by the wayside where the Word is sown, but when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the Word that was sown in their hearts. The sower sows the word. It's interesting when he talks about these different types of people, the different types of ground. He says absolutely nothing about God having to send the Spirit directly to open people's hearts so that they'll be receptive to the seed. He says absolutely nothing about that. 
He says the sower sows the word. The seed contains life. It's what causes germination. And the seed is sown and people respond to it. That's how it works. And he says Satan wants to come in and swoop down and take the word out of your heart and your mind. Why? If the word of God is powerless, if it takes a direct operation of the spirit to make the conversion happen, then why does he care? Because Satan knows <laughs> that that's where the conversion happens. That if you let that word sink into your heart and mind and into your home and into your life, it'll change you. It'll transform you. It'll cause you to repent. It'll cause you to bear fruit to the glory of God. And so he seeks to take away the word out of your heart because that's how God convicts us. That's how God converts us through the Spirit. That's why the devil loves these doctrines that would seek to take the Word of God, the incentive, out of our hands, out of our minds, out of our hearts, and replace the objective truth with these subjective standards of following our feelings and our emotions and our gut and attributing those things to the Holy Spirit, when often they are very unholy. John six sixty three, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in life. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that many of the things that are described as the work of the Spirit are also described as being accomplished through the Word of God. Their involvement in creation and in the new birth and transforming us in our salvation and our sanctification, conviction, guidance, comfort that we've already talked about, power and truth and bearing witness. We see again the Spirit accomplishing that through the medium of the Word of God. And the question becomes if the Spirit does all that through the Word of God, what need have we for any additional revelation or communications from the Spirit that aren't given in this book? What impressions are needed to be made upon my heart that the Lord, word of the Lord is not capable of making? And the answer is absolutely nothing. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And with that concept understood, we can begin to understand how it is the Spirit operates upon us in convicting us and converting us. Does He do that? By a direct voice from heaven, we've already been talking about that. Does he do that through a sensational experience or heart prompting? People fall over and shout. We talked about that last time. Begs the question, will the Spirit kill people in converting them? People claim to be led by the Spirit, but yet they're led to teach and practice different things in different denominations. Is God the author of that confusion? And we have a great resource in the book of Acts where we can go and see what they clearly had to do to be converted, to become a Christian. And those things that we see in every case of conversion are what constitute a scriptural conversion, matching the great commission given by Jesus. Those things that are unique to some of those conversions are not necessary for the salvation. Just like when we are baptized, the state that you are baptized in, the day of the week, some of those details are unique, are not necessary in every case of conversion. But those things that they had to do in every case of conversion are what we have to do 2,000 years later. So let's look at a few of those conversions. Acts 2, the first conversions, the Jews on, on Pentecost. Peter does what? Prays for a direct operation of the Spirit upon them? No, he preaches the Word. And he convinces them with objective testimony that you've crucified the Son of God. He, he talks about the miracles, the confirmation, the prophecies. In the word of God that Jesus fulfilled, and then the ultimate proof, the empty tomb. He preached to them because it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when they heard the word of God, they had faith. 
They were pricked in their hearts when they heard this. They were pricked in their hearts. How did the Spirit prick their hearts? How did the Spirit operate upon them? Through the preaching of the Word of God. Through the truth. Through the gospel. And they asked, what must we do? And what did Peter tell them? Do nothing. Pray through. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When we hear and read the words of the Spirit, we hear and read the words of the Bible, we hear and read the words of the Spirit. And persons operated upon by the Spirit may receive or reject the teaching of the Spirit as they so choose, as they elect. And that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. They gladly received. They had the power of choice. They had the power to respond. And those that gladly received His word did what? Were baptized and were added into the church. Acts chapter 8, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Somebody says, well, we have the direct work of the Spirit. Yes, we do. The Spirit was involved in, in, in speaking to Philip. You don't see that in every case of conversion. That's not necessary in every case of conversion. Again, during the miraculous age, before the New Testament was completed, that kind of activity was going on, but it wasn't perpetual. And what did the Spirit do? It's the, the real point. What did the Spirit do? Did He swoop down on the eunuch and save him, directly operating upon his heart? The, the eunuch didn't even know that the Spirit had sent Philip. The Spirit told Philip to go preach to the eunuch, and then he, then he was gone. Put him in contact with the preacher, because it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's the Great Commission. Humans teaching humans. And that's why it's important for us to be evangelistic. Because it's not going to be directly by a vision or an angel or a salvation experience. It's going to be through us. That's our job. And that's why it's important that we study the Word of God. Because that's how God speaks to us today. He finds the eunuch reading from Isaiah 53, a prophecy of Jesus, perfect segue to preach Christ unto him. In the very next verse, after preaching Christ to him, the eunuch says, what doth hinder me from being baptized? Evidently, you can't preach Christ without preaching baptism. He didn't preach a salvation experience. He preached the gospel. And he preached the commandments of Jesus. And how we submit to that and we obey that and we express our belief in that by being baptized. The Spirit didn't do anything directly to the eunuch. He sent a preacher to him. What about the conversion of Paul? One of the most extraordinary because you have somebody who hated the church, hated Christ, wasted and persecuted. In fact, he's on this operation persecution on the road to Damascus, and he has a come-to-Jesus meeting. He has an experience. He sees Jesus. He talks to Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I'm Je he believes. He calls him Lord. He has an eight for three days. He's a penitent man. He prays for three days. And he asked Jesus the natural question they ask in Acts 2. What do I need to do? What must I do to be saved? And why didn't Jesus tell him directly right then and there? Why didn't he tell him directly? He said, I'm going to send you to Damascus and someone's going to be sent to you who will tell you all things that are appointed for you to do. Not a direct operation of the Spirit. You're going to be told something. You're going to be taught something that's going to convert you. Why didn't Jesus tell him directly? Because Jesus had given the Great Commission, and he wasn't going to violate that. He had delegated that task to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. And neither an angel, nor the Lord, nor the Spirit was going to directly answer that question. It's answered through the preaching of the Word of God. And so Ananias comes to Paul, and what did he tell him? 99% of Christendom today would pronounce him a saved man. He believes, 
He's repented. He's prayed for three days. And yet Ananias says, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Making an appeal to God, calling on him to wash away our sins in the blood of his son. Yet many today are told that God is willing to save them, but they need to be willing. And they're told to pray through. Now evidently they're willing and God's not. They're told to have this salvation experience. Better felt than better felt than told. And you have these preachers that are very good at manipulating emotions and making you feel something and attributing that to the spirit. We can do that by going to the ball game, the contagion or contagious emotions, where we get emotional based on the masses, or we can go to a concert and get emotional. The music, the lights, all those things that can manipulate our emotions. And people who are more prone to that can easily be manipulated into thinking they felt something or heard something or saw something. What about people who aren't as emotional, who are maybe more logical thinkers, didn't feel anything, and they think, well, I just didn't have a salvation experience. I'm just not elected. Is that how God works? Is that fair? Religious experiences and emotions are not the Holy Spirit. We talked about that earlier. That could be something entirely different. The Holy Spirit is not the force from Star Wars in terms that Jason can appreciate and understand. It's not how the Spirit works. In the book of Acts, we see people not told to pray through. They were told to be baptized. Because it's not the prayer of sinners that saves. The Bible makes that clear. My prayer, flowery words, whatever, is not going to save me. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we contact that blood by believing, repenting, and being baptized. Period. What about Cornelius? Great man, but he still needed salvation. There's none righteous, no, not one. So the angel tells him, I'm going to send somebody to you. Why didn't the angel tell him directly what you needed to do? Because that's not how it works. And Peter sent to him. Why? Why not a direct operation of the Spirit? Peter sent to him, who when he comes, he shall speak unto thee, to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. Then Peter opened his mouth. He recounts that in the next chapter. Who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. That's how the Spirit works through the words in our salvation. And then the case of Lydia, which is the favorite of the, the Calvinist or those ascribing to this direct operation of the Spirit, Acts 16, 14 and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, the city of Thyatira, worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of by Paul. You can see how they would latch on to the Lord opened her heart. Say, see, that was necessary because of her depravity for her to be receptive to the teaching of Paul. Notice again, like all the other passages we looked at, the proof text, nothing in here says there's a direct operation of the Spirit apart from the Word of God. Nothing in here about it being irresistible. And notice the sequence of events. She heard the teaching of Paul. Then her heart was opened. Then she attended the things taught by Paul. How did the Lord open her heart? The same way he opens our heart. Hebrews 4.12. Quick and powerful. Pricking the heart. Acts 2. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. How was her heart opened? By hearing the word of God. The Lord uses the word to open the heart to convict us and convert us and change our life. What we see throughout the book of Acts when people ask, what must I do? What must I do? What must I do? 
Sometimes the Holy Spirit was, was present in part of those stories, or angels, or Jesus himself with Paul, and they wouldn't tell him directly why. Because that would violate the Great Commission. That would make God a respecter of persons. These salvation experiences that certain people, the elect, get that others don't, that would make God unfair that he would send you an experience, but I didn't get an experience. That would make God very unfair and very unjust. It would violate the logical, orderly system that God has put in place. There'd be no need to send the gospel to the heathen. There'd be no need to send Bibles and missionaries to India, Nigeria, and Belize and throughout the world if God operated apart from the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. What's the point? Why give the Great Commission as your final words on earth if God was going to do that directly by operation of the Spirit? Because it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Humans teaching humans. And the truth is, you won't find a conversion in the New Testament. You won't find a conversion for 2,000 years apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apart from the word of God. Period. Because that's what convicts and converts us. And that's what changes us. You know, the heart... How does the Spirit speak to our heart? The heart is more, in the Bible, the heart is more than just our emotions. Because of Hollywood and things like that, we've come to define our heart as just our emotional nature. Now, the heart is involved in our emotions. The Bible talks about sorrow of heart and rejoicing in heart. But it's also the seat of our intellect. Jesus talked about people thinking and reasoning and understanding with their heart, in their heart. Paul said we must believe with the heart. The heart's also described as the seat of our free will. Paul talked about a person making a choice in their heart. We purpose in our heart when we give on the first day of the week. Obeying from the heart when we are baptized. The Bible connects our heart and our conscience. Acts 2, we read earlier. So if those facts are true, how has the heart changed? Well, if it's the seed of our intellect, how are you going to change that? Through words, through preaching, through teaching. It'll change the mind. Romans 12 talks about transforming the mind through the will of God. If the heart is the seat of our emotions, how are those changed? Well, the goodness of God that we read about in that book moves us and motivates us, causes us to sorrow over sin, causes us to have joy and rejoice when we submit to God and obey His will for us. The heart is also, the Spirit also makes an appeal to our will and freedom of choice. Revelation 22, the Spirit and the bride say, come. That appeal is made through the gospel. It impacts our conscience. Hebrews 10.22 speaks of our conscience being cleansed when we obey God, when we obey the Word of God, we find the eunuch and others rejoicing after they were baptized, after they obeyed God. That's how the Spirit pricks our heart through the Word. That's how the Spirit touches our heart and changes our heart through the Word of God and makes an appeal to our heart. Listen, the Holy Spirit's not going to save you separate and apart from the Word of God and from your free will response to it. How do we know that we're saved? That's an important question. Are you saved this morning? How do you know? Gut feeling? A hunch? That's the common idea taught today. I just feel in my heart. I feel. You know, a person will feel saved whether they are or not. You can feel a lot of things and be wrong. <laughs> Jacob thought Joseph was dead and he wasn't. Felt that way. Jacob felt God wasn't in this place and then he discovered God was in this place. Samson felt God was not, was, God, Samson felt God was with him and he wasn't. He had departed from him. The Bible says our feelings are deceitful. Last thing you need to trust is your heart and your emotions that are wicked and deceitful. The only way I can know that I'm saved is by complying with God's conditions of pardon as revealed objectively in His Word for all of us. It's the only way I can know that with certainty. You see, 
God defines the pardon, not me. Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My feelings don't define whether or not I'm pardoned or not. God does. It's his plan of salvation. The only way I can know that, just like I know Jesus, the Son of God, is by the testimony that's given in his word. So how does God speak to us in the 21st century? That's what all this boils down to. In the garden, he spoke directly to Adam. Centuries later, he spoke directly to Abraham and directly to Moses. Jesus appeared to Paul. Angels were sent to Zacharias and Mary, etc. Should we expect that today? Does he still communicate in that way? Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he speaks to us by his son. Matthew 17, 5, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I well pleased. Hear ye him. Jesus said in John 12, 48, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him the last day. That word's the standard that we're going to be judged by. John 17, as he prayed for his apostles, not just for them, but for us, for those who will believe on me through their word, through the words of the apostles, that's us. John 20, 31, these are written, why? That ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Ephesians 3, we talked about this earlier. The apostles are dead. How do we receive the, the words of the Spirit through the apostles? Because when we read, we may understand the mystery of Christ. Those words have been recorded for us. So hearing God's will in the 21st century is as easy as picking up a providentially inspired and preserved word of God. The words of Jesus, the words of the prophets and apostles through the Spirit that equip us for every good work, all things that pertain to life and godliness so that we don't need any more modern-day inspiration, any more modern-day confirmation, any more modern-day messages or dreams or leading of the Spirit apart from this book. It's all right there. And how God speaks to us today has great eternal implications. Many Christians don't study their Bible because... They're waiting for the Spirit to lead them and direct them apart from the Word of God. It's easier. It's more convenient. And I can be led to do what I want to do and where I want to go and call that the leading of the Spirit. God wants me to do this, and God told me to do this, and God wants me to... Yet we have a multitude of verses that explicitly or implicitly tell us that we need to fill our lives, our heart, our mind every day with the Word of God. Others wait for a salvation experience, the direct operation of the Spirit so that they know that they're saved. And they wait and they wait and they wait. Others feel that they were saved even though what they did doesn't match the commission of Jesus. Doesn't match God's plan of salvation. Doesn't match what people were told to do in the book of Acts. Yet they feel they're saved. And people wait and they wait and they wait. Paul said in Acts, or Ananias told Paul in Acts twenty two sixteen, what are you waiting for? Quit waiting. And do what the Spirit is leading you to do through the Word. Believe, repent, and be baptized. And your sins will be washed away. You know what the truth is? The elect, you know who the elect are? The plan was what was predestinated. The plan of the cross was what was predestinated. That those who accepted that would be elected. Those who don't accept that are not elected. And God created us with free will and the power of choice because of love. And His fairness and His justice and His mercy and His grace, He's made that available to all. You know who the elect are? Whosoever will. You know who the non-elect are? Whosoever won't. 
That's the truth. You know, Calvinism's version of irresistible grace we've seen is unbiblical. But there's a sense in which God's amazing grace, God's love, God's forgiveness, what God did in sending His Son, what Christ did in dying for us on the cross, there's a sense in which you could say that should be irresistible. Even though we have free will and the power of choice, who would say no to that? Who would reject that? Who wouldn't gladly receive that and be baptized? The Bible says the love of Christ constrains us. It's compelling. Why would we say no to that? If you're here this morning and you're subject to the gospel invitation, the gospel call, if you need to become a Christian this morning, if you want the Spirit to operate upon you this morning, He does that through the instrument of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And He says, believe, repent, and be baptized. Quit waiting. Maybe you're here as a Christian. You've made that decision, but you need to renew your faith. How do I do that? Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Get back to the Bible. In every aspect of your life. If you're subject to that invitation, don't resist the Spirit. Don't resist the Spirit by resisting the truth. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit invite you to come. Revelation 22, 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will. You can choose. You have the power of choice this morning. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. The Lord's invitation, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. If you need to respond to that invitation, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit invite you to come and take freely of the waters of life as we stand and sing together.